0: Welcome to Hard-Earned Wisdom, a podcast about the life lessons learned while stumbling through trauma, grief, loss, and unmet expectations. My guests share personal stories from the trenches, and most importantly, the hard-earned wisdom that I hope will inspire new ways of surviving and thriving in difficult life circumstances. In this episode, Oki shares his experiences navigating the most difficult and transformative year of his life. He shares what he learned about himself, while losing a friend to cancer, overcoming PTSD after an assault, and co-parenting two kids through a divorce and shared custody. I, I think just as if you get to know your questions, like where are you living now? Um, how is the pandemic altering your day-to-day life? I assume it is, most of us are being affected. Let's start there.
1: Okay, this is, this is fun. Um, I live in Alaska. And I was raised here. I moved out a bit, but I've stayed here because I choose to. It's, uh, it's where my kids are, and it's basically where mo- most of my community is. Uh, COVID-19 is a bit abstract up here because we have such a low population that we actually have enough places to go that we could be outside. So I barely notice it, um, with the exception that I do, I do take care of my brother's um, affairs because of just the nature of him being in the military. So I live on a, on a military base, so it makes it interesting. Because they did lock us down for a little window of time, which was initially really scary. I remember the day that I had to go around with my partner and the kids in the car and get signatures to make sure everything was squared away so that I could get on and off base because I'm, I'm a co parent. So I share my kids 50 with my, 50 with my former spouse. And that ends up being a lot of like what my life revolves around is my kids. But um, today, in what looks like our, our, our new normal, it, I feel like I've largely started to move away from really, I, 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 I don't want to use words that are just kind of like on the top, but this is the, the simplest way to put it, really allowing my mind to be overcome with the experience of what we're all going through from a place of fear. I understand and I went deep down the rabbit hole to understand virology and just the nature of how um, the virus worked because I had asthma and early on we didn't know what, what were the, the risk factors for someone like me. But at some point I realized it was engulfing my life. It was engulfing my energy state. And I just, I stopped. So where I'm at now is like, how do I tread this line of staying um, connected and aware to other people's experiences? Because I realized I'm really good at just kind of going into my own bubble. Um, but it, it really distorts what's going on because when I step back out in society, I could pick up on the energy. I could pick up on the way people are behaving. I know it's not, it, we're not all in the same place. And so it's really helpful to have these kind of conversations because it's like, okay, we're all starting from a different place.
0: Yeah, yeah, so true. Um, How often are you kind of checking in on news at this point out of curiosity?
1: (laughs) I'm gonna be really honest. I did a binge in the last week. And that binge was, I think, mostly triggered to um, the social unrest around the the riots going on in the cities. Right. And it was actually helpful. I talked with a, a, a mentor of mine yesterday and he gave me a lot of context because he's far older than me. And he told me about living through the Detroit riots in 1968. And I didn't realize that that would, I found that soothing. Like just knowing, even though I'm not experiencing it right here in, in Anchorage, Alaska, we're not have, we have luckily a very collaborative community, um, look to be ahead of, ahead of the curve on what's going on. Um, so we don't have that kind of tension. We're well integrated here, racially and also a bit like social class wise. I actually, I had to draw the line. I told my partner, I'm like, I can't, I can't stay up till two in the morning scrolling feeds. And what's interesting is I don't, I don't watch headline news. I actually end up mostly reading market news because I'm mostly interested in how this is affecting um, my ability to survive financially. But also, um, I, I really prefer firsthand accounts on the ground. So I end up going through Reddit and finding individuals who are actually posting. And in some ways that's actually better because it's heartwarming. I hear like personal accounts from people, like what's happening, but in other times it's, you just see the worst stuff, so it's not productive. Um, I'm grateful that between yesterday and today, I started the cycle of deep breathing and moving away from it all. So this morning, it was just I need to look at market news, and that was it.
0: Um, it is really difficult. I think there, there's so many different ways that the message can get shifted from the reality of what's happening. So I really like that perspective. How do you find those on the front lines telling an honest account of what their experience was? I think that's really important. I think mm-hmm. everything can get so hyper politicized in our world and we all have to be really on guard to find the honest truth of what's happening to people who are experiencing it. Um, and that's a whole different tangent. I know I don't want to, I don't want to take this too political, but anyway, it's just something that I'm trying to make sense of as well. And like, how, how much do I engage in productive pursuit of equality and, what powers do I have? I, mm-hmm. I agree that you can get really stuck up and just, you know, you can get really stuck on um, <laughs> looking at the news as a shock and awe campaign. Just defend and protect and hide in your own bubble. And that's not a helpful approach. But anyway, um, too much about me and what I'm, what I'm thinking. Let's jump to, I'm curious about kind of your, your professional life I'm intrigued by some things I I learned about you just in general online. And I know you have some photography in your background. You talk a lot about um, more creative innovation and how do you support artists? And I'd love to hear more about kind of what you're working on now, what you do professionally and what your passions are in um, artistic expression.
1: Mm, Okay. The evolution. And this is, this is funny because this is what 2020 and this is the, the first official year where I've taken on the title and the role of calling myself an artist. It was something i felt for a long time, but I pushed away from it. It's just something I had a personal, um, I didn't, I didn't like the perceptions of like the, the poor artist or the artist who's just like constant in struggle. And so for a long time, when I got into photography, it was back, uh, back when it was still the film days in Southern California. Um, assisting a commercial photographer, I realized that photography could be its own world. It could be just a photographer in an industry. And so for a while, that's how I kind of seeded a lot of my skill set was just like being able to be in the wave of what was the digital age and then riding the internet to what it is today. But along the way, I started noticing because I'm very like heart forward, I like to connect with people. And... When technology started getting to the point where cameras were abundant and then video cameras became abundant, I noticed that videographers had more of an inclination to collaborate. Like they were just so much more inclined to say, hello, what are you working on? And want to collaborate on creative projects. And I found myself confused. I'm like, why doesn't the photo community do that? We're kind of like a bunch of like lone wolves, like all semi-competitive, very isolated. And the the pattern was always um, this need to lead with ego. And it was in that state of awareness that I started picking up on a few um, new photographers in my community who were younger, they're kind of the next generation, and they were much more inclusive. So um, I kind of call them sort of the the millennial Gen Z photographers. And it's because for them, it was more of a social experience. And it was right around then that uh, we started combining powers, because the idea was, we all have these ambitions to create, let's create together. And so initially, that looked like. uh, going on long drives to do uh, photography of the Aurora or um, the hashtag that was start up here was sharing Alaska, which is just bringing people out to other parts of Alaska to get them to experience it. And it was all from this place of like, like generosity and giving and connecting. It wasn't about being a photographer or, or proving you had the best photo, which is a big mind shift for me because I came from the mindset of who were, you were only validated as a photographer if you could validate yourself through what you were published in. Who are you rubbing elbows with? What are you getting access to? And um, that exclusivity, exclusivity, and nature of just sort of like accolades that sometimes the, the photographer world get turn into—it's um, it's really lonesome because it's just. It, I mean, it feels like you're just talking about yourself all the time. So, anyways, with these, um, initially, I think it was about a group of like ten or so uh, Gen Z photographers up here in Alaska. We we started um, a pop up space. We did a weekend pop up space at a mall, and that's when I realized that you could actually just put together creative minds to make something happen. And that's when I started feeling like maybe I'm more of just an artist, like a loose creative was a category I put it in. And back then, this is before Instagram got big, um, I had enough knowledge around uh, licensing and intellectual property as a photographer that I shared with uh, some of the younger photographers. And one of them really took it to heart because he also worked with another professional as a photographer and actually started um, an online agency where the idea was, let me be sort of a a mentor and a bit of a project broker between creatives who are getting brands that reach out to them, but they don't know the first thing about negotiating or how to value themselves um, in a monetary sense. And um, those early relationships of, hey, let's try this creative experiment in a pop-up and, hey, we're all photographers led to who I am today, which is, I see myself as a creative individual who Now I don't put boundaries. I know better now. I don't put boundaries around what I call creativity. I actually call community building creativity because it's my ability to step into a room and create social permission for others to behave differently. Uh, It's also the way I'm brought into a project to think about strategy. So to answer what I'm doing today is um, I'm moving towards a community community engagement role, but it's starting initially at a sort of a team building capacity. For uh, They're currently a nonprofit based out of Alaska, but uh, they're called GreenStand. They actually have uh, an open source technology which allows anyone to photograph a tree with a smartphone and then definitively know where it is and continue to check on it, basically like the life cycle of the tree. But the idea is how can we take this information about the geolocation of this tree and then turn it into valuable data that someone will then pay for that we could then compensate the farmer who planted the tree. And so the idea behind this organization is have environmental and social impact at the same time, like happening at the exact same time. And what's fun about this as a creative exercise, I was talking to the founder yesterday, we went on a long bike ride to kind of hash out a, a strategy with a new partner. Imagine, imagine being able to live through a paradigm shift of going from what we valued before to a new way of valuing things. And, the ability to collaborate with, at least what this project looks like, collaborate with banks, uh, community partners, regional partners, governments, different players at different levels to bring value and sustainability to a community. And to me, that is just an exciting project. Like it's so fun. It also has enough, and this is the thing that I've noticed is my nature. It has enough different avenues in it that it allows me to step into my activator role create a sense of like uh, direction with something and then hand it off to someone else. Because what I found with me as a creative, and this was something for a long time that I, I almost was disappointed with in myself was that I have a tendency to feel bad when I have to leave something. And that was only the case because I didn't take the time ahead of time to let people know, Hey, I'm very passionate. I'm very driven, but you don't want me in a long-term management role. You want me in a leadership role. You want me to start something up, identify the right people and then bring them to the table and then empower them to keep it going. And so with, uh, with that communicated, I'm really excited basically about moving forward with this green stand project because it, I'm, I'm originally from Colombia and I see a lot of ambition and po- like possibility with, with, doing work with them in, in South America. Um, at the moment, what we're looking at is, um, there's a company called loving earth. They make, um, like really premium chocolate bars and, they're harvesting the chocolate from an indigenous community in Peru. And the cacao is being replenished through planting trees. And what they want to do is have definitive accounts for the trees that they're harvesting from, for trees that they're planting. And so it's really wonderful because we're seeing a bit of a market-driven incentive to help a rural community who normally would not have access to like, any financial activity. Like Economies are just slower. And that's something I really empathize with because I live in Alaska and we still have like most of the state that's isolated from the road system. So I have friends whose family is just like, yeah, there's just a, not much of an economy going on. So um, this is why I say for me, art is a bit like of like my life. It's all the experiences that I get to have, the people who I get to meet and then the possibility of what I could create with the right kind of people.
0: That's awesome. I love it so much. I have a fine arts degree and I feel so much of, so much of the way I think and live in the world, I feel like I'm an artist and I'm a designer and I want to be more of an activist. I often feel powerless. It's like that culmination of, of how do you bring all of these wonderful things together in a way that is like the power with infrastructure so that everyone can can more laterally collaborate instead of so many um, poor examples of like a top-down you know, the person who has power and then pushing prices down for other people. I think there's so, so much potential in what you're saying. And it gets me really excited too.
1: Um, Mm -hmm. I've been
0: doing a lot of more um, skills training in data analysis and data science, not because I want that as a career path, but because I think with with design training, if you can add these other components of technology and, and where we are, you can do so much more value for so many more people and bring up some more interesting questions. So, so exciting. So exciting. I, what's the name of the entity again, you're working with in Alaska, The people want uh, that's, to come up into it.
1: Uh, Greenstand. Greenstand. Green, greenstand.org. Yeah. That's awesome. So exciting. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, thank you. I also think um, connecting more people to technology because that is the language of communication in our modern world um, is really valuable. Your, your interest and willingness in being interviewed by me for the podcast was about ultimately what you called the most difficult and transformative year of your life, which we're going a few years back. Was it 2016? Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So you've mentioned you lost a friend to cancer. You went through a divorce. You were assaulted and experienced PTSD. That's a lot to deal with in one year. Take me through that year. Talk me through what you experienced, what you were feeling.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it was like a slow train wreck. Now that I look back on it, there was... Today, I I know that I can... I'm more aware of what are behaviors. Like I mentioned earlier, staying up too late, watching news. Um, Back then, I didn't have awareness for what my pattern of behavior was. And because the absence of that awareness, I would allow myself to just basically put up with a high level of stress. And by that point in life, my co-parent and I, we had, we were pretty much like exhausted as a couple and the difficult thing. And this is, what's interesting is that I think um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to talk about 2016 broadly and it's a few details and try not to get stuck in the details of the experience. Um, I, I grew up as a kid with a, a high level of stress. So I have a high level of tolerance and conflict that I can put up with. Um, it's what allows me to work in states of chaos where things aren't well defined and create order, but it's also uh, a disservice to relationships because a relationship doesn't need a constant state of chaos it needs like flow. And back then my, my spouse at the time, she was pregnant with our second, which was my son. And we had just come back from Colombia and visiting the farm, came back with my daughter and her and just started unraveling. I remember this, this incident and it was very stressful and it was, I was triggered and flooded all over again. And I started disconnecting and moving away because back then I also didn't have a good way to identify the motions inside me and know how to communicate what was going on. It's just, I just wanted to escape, um, between fight or flight. It's like I needed flight. And what was interesting is right around that time in this is the last quarter of 2018, early quarter of 2019, when I got back, uh, my my good friend Ian reached out um, and was like, "Hey, man, I have cancer." And I remember when he told me that, it's like I didn't understand it. I, I just my brain wouldn't compute it. I listened, but I just it's like I wasn't ready to understand or feel into what that what that meant. And what followed with that was me visiting him roughly every every week, just to see how he was doing. And he was mostly bedridden as he was starting to go into uh, the different forms of treatment. And what I this is, I think where it, where, where twenty sixteen got kind of like into mind warp. My uh, my friend Ian was very good at. Um, always like keeping sort of a poker face. So he wouldn't let anyone know really what's going on. Um, But I knew he was scared. I could feel it. Um, The conversations we were having side by side. And um, I remember one specifically, because we were watching TV and I was sitting in bed next to him. And he was was telling me about like what it would feel like to know that this is done and over with. And it was the first time I started feeling with his like, feeling with his experience of like being lost in this like unknown state of what's going to happen. and I got a bit wrapped up one in the pain of the relationship with my co-parent, um, currently my co-parent, but back then my spouse, and two his his ability to remove himself from the possibility that he might die. That I almost uh, in early 2016 forgot to check in with myself, and the reason why I say that is what sort of led to the apex of like this is uh, like a perfect storm was. At the time, the community I live in, Anchorage, was having a rapid rise in crime. Like, it was bad. I grew up here as a kid. We never used to lock our doors. And it was all of a sudden, cars being open, like, assaults, um, people being murdered on bike trails. And it was like, it was just awful. And me being who I was back then, the activist advocate, um, I was like, I can't let this happen to my community. And I got really obsessive. On a, what was that? What was that app called back then? Um, the app where your neighbors basically talk about other neighbors. Um,
0: I I can't remember. I never used it. But yeah, there's some kind of like community neighborhood. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I I basically took it upon myself
1: to be a bit of like a community uh, eyes on the street kind of person. And I ended up watching my neighborhood in this little geographic bubble and going to where there were incidents. Some of them were just totally racially motivated like it 's just someone 's car broke down in from someone 's property, and the individual just needed help. They sincerely did and i was it 's like back then I was convinced I needed to play a role to keep everything together and Now I know today that that 's kind of my tendency when things get stressful it 's like hyper control of everything and to the point that I lost myself in in my needs, so what happened was that um, And I'm trying to remember the exact window of events, but basically Ian passed away far sooner than we thought. And I had a ton of regret for not coming to visit him at the hospital as much as I did. Um, Because again, I was wrapped up in the experience of the pain of my marriage at the time. And it's like, I was avoiding people. I would not get close to people because I felt so hurt inside. And then shortly after he died, I set out early, like first thing in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, I saw something on the, the app, whatever the app was, about African-American kids going through the neighborhoods. And I went out there and I found them. And I ended up finding myself um, in the situation where, yeah, there was uh, basically a driver who was using underage teens to like, go out and do the, the stealing. And I don't know what the agreement was, but basically, they would hand off the, whatever they stole. And me being who I was, because I knew one of the individuals, I gave them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, years ago, I had actually built bikes with um, uh, kids in a community at the boy, the Boys and Girls Club. And it was really fun because it was a way of sort of creating like, uh, a bit of an activity in a neighborhood that normally doesn't have activities going on. Uh, it's a low-income neighborhood, but it's also a beautifully like rich and culturally diverse neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And... Back when I was a, more of a community organizer, we put together a, a satellite bike shop that was based on another nonprofit. Um, and I recognized one of the kids from that community. And so I, I gave them benefit of the doubt about what was going on. And I was wrong. They were definitely getting into trouble. And The mistake I made was I, I took a photo of a vehicle that looked suspicious to me, which triggered in them the threat that I had identified who they were because I was their, one of their drivers. And I found myself encircled and assaulted. And then uh, that assault, and I remember this because when I came back home, I was in shock. But I didn't know I was in shock. Um, It's like I couldn't find ease anymore. I couldn't settle into being at ease. And I had to go into therapy because I had these moments where I would step out of my garage to take out the garbage. And I would freeze completely freeze. And I would go right back to that state of mind that I was circled and about to be assaulted. And I had to wait until it went away to come back to reality. And then when I came back to reality, my present reality of like taking garbage out to the outside to the, to the garbage can, I was shooken up. And it was basically around then when I'm like, okay, I have to go back and see my therapist because something happened. Um, and so come to find out, um, yeah, PTSD and I needed to work through that. But the reason why this journey of 2016 still continues today is that, and the pressure cooker of what was 2016, um, regret around losing a friend, basically just being hard on myself for not being there to the extent that I could have towards the tail end, my marriage falling apart. And then this assault, um, I use, and this is the first time I'm talking about this. Okay. This is the first time I'm talking about this. Um, at least with, we'll say a total stranger, but you're not exactly a stranger. Yeah, um, I abandoned my wife at the time and my son just before he was born. Like I emotionally disconnected. I was verbally abusive, and I was in such pain that I hurled so much pain that I disconnected. And the reason why this is, it's it's not like an experience that I'm reliving as a journey to rediscover myself, but it was such a stark contrast between the way we were when my daughter was born and the way we were when my son was born. And it's like night and day. they are two opposite ends of the spectrum. And I feel like that, that experience of knowing that, again, I chose to step into a place of flight out of fear and come from a place of pain that has then become the new thing for me to stay aware of in my journey as a parent. Luckily, my co-parent and I were, initially, um, more inclined to be collaborative in the process of going through the divorce because we recognize, Hey, we've got a two-year-old and a newborn. We got to navigate this very differently than most people. And we were able to amicably sell the house and get things settled. So it wasn't a lot of, um, stress and drama, but what it left with me was sort of like this, you know, I, I basically stepped out of a middle-class lifestyle and the house went away and then I was back to just being on my own and trying to make life work again through roommates. And I, I can be kind of hard on myself. I want to, I have a perfectionist tendency that I'm not always aware of and I was almost measuring myself constantly around what I had lost. Um, and so today who I am and why I feel like this journey continues is that what helped me heal from that entire 2016 experience was that on my 33rd birthday when I told that story, It was all about me choosing not to hide. I chose to step out onto that stage because I'm like, I will not go into that dark place because that dark place is not productive. That's where I know I don't, I don't contribute who I am, like my whole self. And doing that basically forced me to be in, in a state of, um, I think accountability with others. Cause obviously I did like a presentation. People saw me, I told the story and people saw me. And so it's a small enough community that, you know, people, when you go places. And I, it was almost like when I saw them, I remembered who I was and how I felt when I told that story and I felt empowered and resilient. And I knew that regardless of what I had gone through, I could give myself the compassion to rediscover who I was. And it's from that place that I continue to basically be today because the journey of parenting only got more difficult with COVID-19. Um, But it also got more like beautiful in the sense that I had been wanting to have more time with my kids, more time and with a, with a greater state of awareness for what we have right now and be more present with them. And oddly enough, this, this new normal that we're in has actually like forced me to, to step into that. I still have my struggles for sure. And this is, this has more to do with, um, the journey of what I'm realizing with parenting, kids have different de- de- developmental age and developmental needs around different ages. And I myself, I'm, I'm not exactly quite grown up. I, I very much like to be just the fun parent. And at first, I used to really like push away from that idea because you, know, you want to have structure. And I want to be good at, at giving structure and providing discipline and just providing order in that way. But um, the truth is, I'm trying to play to my strengths now. And one of my strengths is definitely empowering and like leadership and just creating a sense of like, like liveliness in life. And so I'm giving myself permission to parent differently. And this is so important because the, um, for, the, for the longest time, it was so difficult, the idea to let go of 50-50, to not have 50-50 parenting. And it was a, a few years ago, about a year ago that my co-parent and I decided this because I was struggling financially and I needed to find a way to like get a job and get things going. And, um, we just cried, we got out of the mediator's office and we cried because it was this experience of like, it was hard for me because I'm hard on myself. I didn't want to like, it almost felt like admitting failure. And now what's fascinating is that where I am today, it's like, I can actually see the benefit of, we just switched to going 70, 30 and it feels, it doesn't feel like conflict inside me. It feels like acceptance and peace. And that's completely new. It's completely new. So the reason why I'm sharing this entire journey around 2016 is that 2016 was like a pressure cooker of like pain and regret and just a lot of intense emotions. And then the mental trauma that like uh, PTSD that took a while to kind of go through. But on the other side of it now, I could see it for what it was, which was this beautifully rich experience to step back and go, all right, now you get to decide who you're going to be. And then what's that going to look like? And so that's a journey that continues today because well, I'm a parent and I'm still an artist, and we have this new reality of things to juggle. So,
0: yeah, I, I have a few follow up questions because I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned dealing with stress as a child. Like, what, what was the point of stress in your childhood or the many points of stress?
1: I, I know now that my childhood wasn't that unique uh, in the sense that I know other people go through this, but for me at the time, it was, we didn't know. Uh, basically since we're, we're first generation, I'm a first generation American, uh, we immigrated from Colombia. We moved up to Alaska, which in the eighties, it was basically the bottom of the recession. And it was a very slow economy. And it was my father's older brother who, uh, you could think of it. He's the one who sponsored us and brought us up here. And that was from what I can remember, I was three years old at a very young age, um, it was wonderful because we had like this micro community of, of Colombian culture. We were all with our cousins celebrating birthdays, Christmas, and everything seemed like just kumbaya and fine. What I didn't know was happening at the time was that there was this dynamic where at the adult level between my dad and you know his siblings, there was actually uh, a lot of stress around uh, households being financially taxed and resource taxed because again you sponsor people up you're kind of responsible for them you're helping them get their footing and it was starting to fray and we weren't aware of it well anyways by the time I was like I'm gonna spend four it was all gone like it had fallen apart mostly and it was just my family on their own trying to make it and what was interesting was that um, Colombia has a very different culture like it's it's um, much different than America and I I really value what what little expression I got to understand of it through that experience. But, um, what followed was that, uh, basically just I ended up being like a four-year-old that could cook clean and take care of kids. And that need to have, uh, basically the adult role at such a young age, uh, almost created like two versions of me, the version of me that wanted to be a kid and just wanted to like have a sense of like safety. And then the version of me that had to create the stability and safety. It was also a bit difficult because at the time my mom and my dad just fought all the time, constantly about money, um, about how things were going to work. And I remember needing to feel like I had to be the mediator and I couldn't always be the mediator, but when I couldn't be the mediator, I was hard on myself. And when I could be the mediator, I was doing it from the place of like fear and anxiety. So I wasn't like conscious. It's like it was, um, basically at, at a very young age, I got used to operating between, uh, like fight, flight, and my frontal lobe being shut down. It actually ended up affecting my school life quite a bit. I was always a C student, and I ended up being one of the reasons I couldn't do like tests at all. Like I had severe anxiety. But it's okay because one of the most wonderful things my parents did is they kept instilling that sense of curiosity in me um, between teaching and just like eventually they branched down to a church community, and the church community really helped kind of give them a foundation and a place to stand on that actually gave them. One other Spanish-speaking people to be around, but two people who'd support them, like and reach out to them, and that's what they needed. Because the thing about Colombia is, it's all it's it's a you know your neighborhood, like it's kind of like a neighborhood dynamic. You're very close with your neighbors, Mm -hmm. and in America, it feels like it's just my household and then my brother's household or the people who we choose to know, and um, so that helped them really thrive and helped us thrive as kids too. But that's where I picked up my tolerance, basically, is at a young age just be responsible for everything and shoulder it. Didn't matter what was going on.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a lot of pressure for a kid. I, I do think there's a lot of a lot of benefits you can gain from that experience, but yeah, it shows up throughout your life. You know, all the, those formative years as you make sense of how to live and survive, it always is something that you carry with you. And it shows mm-hmm. up in so many ways throughout your life. Some good, some bad. Um, yeah. We talked about your friend Ian... Um, I'm curious what kind of, what kind of cancer he had and when it was, when he was originally diagnosed, did he know, did he get like a specific prognosis and know how much time he had or was it, we just don't know, it's too unpredictable.
1: When Ian and I, when we graduated high school in 2002, he moved to Denver and when he was in Denver, he had this incident where he like almost bled to death. And what had happened was in his liver, I guess the best way I can describe it is it's like there was a bubble and it burst and he was bleeding out from the inside. And back then, and I can't remember what the, what that was, but back then they identified, we need to put you on a new liver donor basically list because this is, this is not something you want to live with. It could, it could cost you your life. Whatever that was. And I wish I could recall the name. And this is what I mean to, to me, he, when we talked about this, I remember when he told me about this when he was in Denver, because we'd talk, while he was far and gone, he almost explained it to me like, oh, it's, it's kind of like when your appendix bursts, you know, you just go in and they take care of you. And again, that was his poker face because he had such a good poker face. I didn't know that by the time from when we graduated high school to when he moved back up here to uh, leading up to 2016, his need to get a new liver had actually heightened. And it was... In that place, in that window of time between um, moving back to Alaska, that I believe his liver condition ended up being something that triggered the cancer. And he had like a complication where basically, it, in addition to needing a new liver, because it had this risk of like just erupting and, and, and him bleeding from the inside, he developed a cancer that was initially isolated to the liver area, but then it just spread. And he went through chemo. He went through a, f- a first version of treatment and that's why we had a lot of hope, but I don't recall what it was. Yeah. I do not recall what it was. I just know that it was tied to basically his liver and his liver had constantly been a thing since I like high school, but something that he just played off like it was just nothing.
0: Right. And mm-hmm. it's so hard with cancer. Most types of cancer where you just, my brother died from cancer, which if you caught previous episodes, you already oh, yeah. know that. Like, you don't know, I remember he's told me once, You mean, maybe I won't get to see my kids graduate high school. And he didn't even get to see them start preschool, you know? And it's, you don't know, It's, it's horrible, it's stressful, it's, and you know, as you mentioned, it's so easy to kind of be in denial, right? It's one of the stages of grief and you just, you can't fully accept and wrap your head around what's happening. And it's difficult to be present and to spend that quality time. Mm-hmm. Emotionally, you're still getting your bearings on what this even means. It's very difficult. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also ask. I'm I'm curious if it's if it's not too personal with your marriage, were things challenged before, or was it all the stress of what you were dealing with between Ian? Between the assault, was it all those specific instances that created the challenge, or were there were there other issues that you had been facing previously, or was it all very concentrated?
1: Um, I think it was concentrated towards the tail end because we become parents, and one of the things that I didn't account for was how my role would change and how my spouse's role would change once there was a kid, uh, because parenting, like I realized, you become two different people, and the truth is there was enough stress and enough indications going into the marriage that I, now I know those were just red flags. Those are just straight up red flags that, that this is something that needs to be looked at in myself because it's affecting the relationship. Um, so no, there was actually, it was just a culmination, but I know for certain that the, it was stepping into the parenting dynamic that most caught me off guard because I didn't realize how much we would resort to our our younger versions of ourselves. Like once I had our, once we had our daughter, I was like, this is it. Life is perfect. Like I'm happy. I'm satisfied. And my, my, my co-parent was as well. I think the difference for her was um, it felt like the time to need to protect and control everything because now you have this thing that you created and is part of you is out there in the world and it's time to protect it. And I think the disconnect there between the two energies, one I'm at peace and the other one, like I need to control was what ended up being the heightened tension towards the tail end. But before I was a parent, we, I had such a poor way of communicating my emotions. And interestingly enough, I wasn't aware of like the Latin American sense of entitlement that, that men typically get because I could I consider myself pretty like progressive and, um, Aware of domestic chore roles because I largely do them since I've been a kid, but um, entitlement plays itself out in very subtle ways, and I've learned to really observe that. And the partnership that I'm in right now really challenges me to see that because, again, I'm aware of what the past pattern has looked like, but it still continues to be a thing I have to audit for. And it's it's fascinating because again, this idea of playing to my strengths now is um, I don't. I don't necessarily believe that it's it's a, a good or bad quality to be entitled, but I think there is a natural state that I operate in that is easier to be around than when I'm being hard on myself. And that's what I'm trying to learn for myself. It's like, I, I want to be a, a awesome supportive partner and a good parent. And it's also about me being easy on myself. And unfortunately, since I was a young age, I never learned what it meant to be easy. I just only know Find resistance, push against resistance, and that's progress. So yeah, Yeah. it's (laughs) that explains it.
0: No, that's a really important mindset shift. And I think that's something I've had to struggle with too, where I'm a fixer and I just my instinct is like, well, let's just fix it. And something like a fixable, definable thing. And I have to just be patient and sit with it and learn to roll with it. And like you said, find the ease in just it's part of your life. It's not a fixable thing. Correct. Yeah. I'm curious what you do today, if there's any specific practice or just kind of a mental check for you to stay in a healthy space and not revert to past behaviors or go back into some type of PTSD.
1: And the PTSD is a very extreme state because that was, uh, that one was, I remember that that's very intense. That feels much different than like when I'm stressed. So what, I guess the way I'll answer your question is what I know today is my pattern is um, if I'm starting to feel anxiety or stress and I'm not aware of it, I'll start to express it by starting to exert control over my environment. And what I'm learning to do now is communicate what's going on inside me. And that first starts with like belly breathing. The last few days, um, I think just the social unrest and the awareness that there's a lot of unrest going on globally. Has led me to as simple as this. I had a Zoom call that didn't work with another person yesterday, and I was so hard on myself because literally my iPad froze. And when I realized, all right, let me get the laptop up, and it, again, in within a two minute window, I went from zero to 60 stressed. And then I just smiled and I breathed because I'm like, Oscar, this is okay. This doesn't mean anything. And so I guess the first thing is I've learned not to assign. Meaning to things that happen and allow myself to perceive reality through my emotional state. The belly breathing has helped. Uh, The same belly breathing that like Daniel the Tiger talks about in the kids' show is very helpful. I was keeping up a semi regular um, meditation practice that kind of comes and goes. At this point, it feels like it's something I'm allowing myself to step into when I'm ready for it, like when I could just do it from a place of ease, not from perfection. But largely, what has been the biggest Will say neutralizer and me bringing me back to grounded or centered is, and it's been with me since 2016. Was picking up a practice of being active. Like for me, it was back then going into yoga and discovering myself through yoga. Um, Basically, I realized that I'm I'm mostly disconnected from my body, and it helps me to get back into my body. So activities like mountain running or biking, things that force me to be hyper present with what I'm doing, are Really awesome, because that's my first baseline to being neutral. And then from there, it's staying aware that I'm not numbing myself. So when I mentioned earlier in our conversation that staying up till two in the morning, well, sometimes when I'm doing those activities i'm I'm allowing myself to observe what is it that's going on? Why did I sit with this post? Why did I choose to read this? Because what I'm trying to do is not just mindlessly numb myself to an activity, like a dopamine release in my mind for something that I'm getting from like a feed. But also, not allow myself to just be in a state of fear, like, no, I have to avoid this. Because again, I struggle with being hard on myself. So I can almost like go to flight state to avoid something. And so I'm trying to be like, okay, where is this balance? Where is this balance in allowing myself to become aware of what's going on in news and media, but also not hyper engulfed in it? And again, the baseline is let me first do my exercise. When those zero to 60 moments happen, go into belly breathing. And then, yeah, try to keep um, an awareness to when I need to communicate that I'm feeling stressed so that it doesn't express itself in like hyper-controlling the environment or being really edgy around those that I love. So,
0: yeah. The last question I always end on, you've already shared a lot of wisdom from what you've learned from your experiences, but what hard-earned wisdom does the world need to hear from you?
1: Well, for some reason, that question is a very difficult one to answer. What hard-earned wisdom does the world need to... I think that if I boil it down to simple seed, it's that this entire thing we call life or awareness is a process and it's a journey. And when you when you deviate consciously or unconsciously from where you were, whether that was your ideal path or what you thought you were supposed to be by this point in time, those deviations are almost always there for a reason. Like I and I know this is sort of like a, a conversation that goes into another area where does everything happen for a reason or is it it's, it, it goes many places and I've personally had to conclude anything that is outside of your control is happening for a reason and it's asking something of you. What you bring is basically then up to your awareness of what your patterns are and how you want to engage next time around. And so it's all a journey. It's all a process. There's no point in focusing on outcomes. It's good to have a goal, but yeah, it's all a process.
0: I love it. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or cover that I haven't asked about or that you, that's been on your mind?
1: Not exactly talk about or cover, but I just I want to thank you for what you're doing. When I came across your project, I was like, oh my gosh, the universe heard me. Actually, the universe heard, heard you way before. But the idea of someone curating stories around resilience and just like hard earned wisdom is something that we all need because it's. I listen to your story. And it is amazing, it is absolutely amazing. And for me, when I look at what we're doing right now between our two screens and the internet, to me this feels like the new modality of creativity and connection because essentially in your story, I felt and I connected with another deeper level of myself and through your experiences. And I kind of feel like that's what we're living in right now. We went through this strange pandemic and now this social unrest for a reason And we all have the ability to bring awareness and connection from our own truths and our own experiences. And I love that you're doing this through podcasts and conversations. So really just saying thank you.
0: That is so generous for you to say because I think anyone who is trying to create something struggles with what exactly is it that I want to create. If it starts as a feeling, it's hard to articulate. But the time and energy that it takes to get people to understand what you're doing and to share your vision can really test your resolve. So to hear that and for you to understand what I'm doing means so much. So thank you for saying that.
1: Yeah, thank you, Cindy. This has been awesome.
0: I hope you discovered something valuable in this episode. If you think it will help someone else, please subscribe, follow and share. You can reach me at cindyholtom at gmail.com or find me on Medium. Thank you for listening to Hard Earned Wisdom.